Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got an interesting show for you guys today. We're going to cover off on a few different things. There have been a lot of updates on some cases that we've covered in the past, in particular, one that is going big right now that is very fascinating to me is the Brian Walsh case, which was the murder of Anna Walsh. And we covered the case of Anna Walsh January 15th on episode 208. And the big news is, is that it was confirmed that Brian Walsh had suspected that his wife was having an affair, which could have been some of the reason that he ended up murdering her. But I found an article that came out just recently that was Brian Walsh hired investigator to follow wife before murder. He suspected an affair, prosecutor says. And this was provided by the WBZ News staff. Brian Walsh, the Cohasset man accused of killing his wife, Anna Walsh, in January, hired a private investigator to follow her in the days before her murder because he suspected she was having an affair, according to the prosecutor. A Norfolk County grand jury indicted Walsh last month for the murder of his wife, misleading a police investigation, obstruction of justice, and for improper conveyance of a human body. The indictment moved the case to Norfolk Superior Court in Dedham, where Walsh appeared Thursday morning in handcuffs. He pleaded not guilty to the charges. So prosecutor Greg Connor then shed light on a more possible motive, saying that Brian Walsh started suspecting his wife was having an affair in December 2022 with one of her male friends from Washington, D.C., where she was working at the time. Investigators said Walsh had his mother hire a private investigator in Washington to conduct surveillance of Anna for the purpose of proving infidelity. It soon became evident that Mr. Walsh suspected his wife of having an affair and routinely visited the Instagram page of one of her male friends. In court Thursday, Walsh's attorney claimed, though, that his mother acted alone. She told Mr. Walsh that she was doing that, and he said she was crazy. Anna's a good girl, but go ahead. You will be proven wrong, according to his defense attorney. Investigators said Anna Walsh, 39, the mother of the couple's three young sons, was last seen in the early hours of January 1st, shortly after having dinner at home with her husband and a friend. The friend left around 1.30 a.m., about three hours before police say Brian Walsh began a series of gruesome internet searches on how to dispose of a body. Prosecutors believe Brian Walsh killed Anna Walsh January 1st. He then made calls about Anna's whereabouts three days later and told investigators she had left New Year's Day for a work emergency. This was established as a lie, but by this time he had killed her, dismembered her, and disposed of her body, according to authorities, and the remains have still not been found. Prosecutors say they have more than 20 Google searches that Brian allegedly made on his son's computer about disposing of a body. They also recovered more than 10 bags of trash that included Anna's bloody clothes and personal items. They also recovered two knives and a hatchet. Several of the items were covered in blood and had both Anna and Brian's DNA on them. Authorities revealed Thursday that a bloody hacksaw they found had a bone fragment on it and that it is still being processed for DNA. Mr. Walsh's Volvo SUV also tested positive for the presumptive presence of blood in the driver's seat control areas, the passenger floor mats, and the rear trunk area. Authorities also said that Anna Walsh had $2.7 million worth of life insurance and that her husband Brian was the sole beneficiary. 
Ryan Walsh has been ordered to be held without bail. His attorney was hoping to have him released, though, on about $250,000, saying there's no body, no murder weapon, no motive, and no evidence. He suspected his wife of having an affair. In that four months, no body was found. There's been no indication of how she died, no murder weapon, and no motive. And he is due back in court on August 23rd. So what's interesting, as some other articles said, that he was using his oldest child's iPad to research divorce. And then right before she disappeared, Anna had gone out with a friend in Washington, D.C., and evidently she had told this friend that she was going to leave her husband and move with her three children to Washington, D.C., because he was going to be incarcerated on his pending criminal case. What's interesting is that Walsh had visited multiple websites about dismembering and disposing of bodies. There's a lot of information about this case out now that we didn't previously know. I thought it was really riveting that he was using his oldest child's iPad to conduct searches on topics. Some of the things that he was searching for was how to dispose of a human body, how long does it take a body to smell, how long does it take a person to be declared dead. The searches started at about 4.50 in the morning and went until 6.30 in the morning on January 1st, after Anna Walsh was seen last. And then they continued on the following day from about 9.30 in the morning until about 2.30 p.m. And he also searched for how to effectively dispose of body parts and how to clean up a crime scene. Some other searches that he did was how to mix ammonia how to remove SIM cards from phones, and then for apartment complexes in Brockton, Massachusetts. Then, on January 3rd, he did searches on the removal of odor of decomposing bodies, crime scene cleanup, crime scene cleanup companies, how to detect blood using fluorescent, and how to remove blood stains from concrete. So, it's not looking too good for Brian Walsh, because you can't tell anyone that his child is going to be looking those things up on an iPad. So regardless of whether he hired the private investigator, regardless of who hired that private investigator, clearly there was some very nefarious stuff going on in the Walsh household leading up to the days that Anna Walsh disappeared. We will continue to keep everyone posted on that. Next, there have also been updates in the Madeline McCann case which I thought were particularly interesting. We covered off on the Madeline McCann case in episode 130, way back in May of 2021. So if you want to hear more about this case, go check that episode out. But evidently there was a woman that was claiming to be Madeline McCann, and she was putting it out on social media that she was the missing little girl. And evidently she got DNA testing done, and the article's titled Madeline McCann, Woman Claiming to be Missing British Toddler Gets DNA Test Results. And Audrey Conklin wrote this article. A Polish woman who thought she could be Madeleine McCann, a British girl who went missing from a family vacation in Portugal 16 years ago, has received the results of a DNA test showing that she is 100% Polish. The Polish woman, Julia Faustia, also goes by Juliet Wendlet, had been claiming for weeks on Instagram and TikTok that she may be McCann, who disappeared around age three due to similarities in their appearance and age. Julia's test results are back. We finally know the reality, says Thea Johansson, a psychic social media star who offered to represent Faustina as a spokesperson during her quest for answers. The test results revealed that she is 100% of Polish heart with negligible influence from Lithuania and Russia. The DNA test results did not show any connection to British or German roots. 
Faustina amassed tens of thousands of followers, many of whom were critical of her claim on Instagram as a result of her speculation online. She and Johansson even appeared on Dr. Phil together, but Johansson says it was never about internet fame. She truly believed what she was saying, and with so many questions about her childhood, it was easy to understand where she was coming from. Faustina's account began posting photos in February, and the Polish woman said she had a spot in her right eye and a beauty mark on her cheek that resembled McCann's. She also claimed the details of her childhood do not add up, leading her to believe that she was abducted as a toddler. Faustina has apparently reunited with her father following the DNA test results. The missing girl's parents, Kate and Gary McCann, along with their three children, Madeline and twins, Sean and Amelie, were on vacation in Portugal when Madeline was taken from her bed in 2007. The family was staying on the ground floor apartment. Due to the active police investigation, Gary and Kate are not issuing any statements or giving interviews unless requested by the police, a spokesperson for them said. The Metropolitan Police Department of London told Fox News Digital that they have no new comments on the investigation. We continue to support colleagues in Germany with their investigation. In 2020, German police named convicted child abuser and drug dealer Christian Bruckner, 45, as a suspect in the three-year-old girl's disappearance. Though Bruckner, a German citizen, continues to deny any involvement in the case. Bruckner is currently serving time in a German prison for drug crimes. He also has a pending seven-year sentence connected to the 2005 rape of a 72-year-old American woman. McCann's family is accepting donations for the search for Madeline through their website, findmadeline.com. Very sad indeed. I'm glad that they got the results to conclusively show that woman that she was not the missing young girl. But on the other hand, we do hope that they find Madeline at some point and convict whoever was responsible for that crime. And we have another update on a case we covered about a month ago about a woman who had been infected with tuberculosis but refused to get treatment or be quarantined. And I guess she's back in the news. Tuberculosis infected woman still going out in public despite arrest warrant. And Ed Cara wrote this one. A Washington woman with acute tuberculosis remains free despite having an arrest warrant filed against her. She was diagnosed over a year ago and has continued to refuse treatment to isolate herself from others while contagious. Local health officials are expected once again to obtain a court order. The saga became public in January when the Tacoma Pierce County Health Department officials alerted the public to the woman's ongoing case of tuberculosis. At the time, they briefly noted that the person refused to complete the recommended antibiotic treatment, which can take months to fully clear the bacterial infection. But local reporting soon revealed that officials had been failing to convince her otherwise for over a year, and the woman had repeatedly ignored court orders obtained by the health department to finish treatment and or remained isolated until she no longer presented a threat to the public. Finally, in late February, Pierce County Judge Philip Sorensen issued a civil arrest warrant, and she was expected to be arrested later this week. The local jail where she would be detained has a special negative pressure room meant to prevent the spread of contagious diseases like tuberculosis. For the time being, though, she remains free. According to court documents obtained by Como News and detailed recently, the woman has continued to elude authorities. The Pierce County Corrections Bureau reportedly sent over an officer to survey the woman, reportedly in the hopes of finding the safest way to possibly take her into custody. The officer noted that she continued to leave her home and at one point even took public transportation to visit a casino in the area. A court-appointed visitor also said they have been unable to get in touch with the woman or her family since 
a scheduled appointment in early March. We are always hopeful that a patient will choose a voluntary compliance in these situations and get the treatment needed to protect themselves as well as others. We will continue to work through the legal process and all options available, according to the Tacoma Pierce County Health Department. Tuberculosis is rare in the U.S. nowadays, but it remains a major public health threat worldwide, with an estimated 1.6 million deaths documented in 2021. Many people initially affected with the bacteria do not develop the illness, but infection can reemerge years later, especially if a person's immune system weakens for other reasons. Those with chronic symptoms, typically respiratory, are contagious to others, and if left untreated, these cases can lead to serious complications. Antibiotic-resistant tuberculosis has become a problem as well, and it's known that starting treatment without completing it can raise the risk of these strains emerging. According to local news stations, health officials are due in court where they will ask for a 16th court order mandating the woman's isolation and treatment for a period of no longer than 45 days. It's not about jail time at all, says a spokesperson. It's about compliance with the health department's orders. Wow, I hope she does get treatment and doesn't expose a whole bunch of other people needlessly. And then one last update we did cover off on the Alec Baldwin rust criminal charges, and evidently he has now been absolved. Alec Baldwin thanks his wife as criminal charges have been dropped in the Rust case. I owe everything to this woman, he says. And Taryn Ryder wrote this one. Criminal charges against Alec Baldwin will be dropped in the Rust case, according to the news. The actor faced two counts of involuntary manslaughter for the accidental shooting death of the cinematographer Halna Hutchkins. The film's weapons handler, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, is still charged. However, her attorneys believe she will also be exonerated. We are pleased with the decision to dismiss the case against Alec Baldwin, and we encourage a proper investigation into the facts and circumstances of this tragic accident, say the attorneys for the actor. Baldwin thanked his wife and lawyer on social media after the news broke. The decision comes one month after special prosecutor Andrea Reed stepped down from the case. Baldwin's lawyers argued her appointment was unconstitutional due to her status as a Republican lawmaker in the New Mexico House of Representatives. Newly appointed special prosecutors are expected to dismiss Baldwin and Gutierrez-Reed's charges without prejudice. This means both could be charged in the future as they continue their investigation. However, that appears unlikely. The new special prosecution team has taken a very diligent and thorough approach to the entire investigation, which we welcome and have always welcomed, they said in a statement. They were seeking the truth and we are also. The truth about what happened will come out and the questions that we have long sought answers to will be answered. We fully expect at the end of this process that Hannah will also be exonerated. Earlier this year, Baldwin pleaded not guilty to involuntary manslaughter. If found guilty, he faced up to 18 months in prison. However, the case faced issues from the beginning. When it was first announced that he would be criminally charged, he faced five years in prison if convicted on the most serious count of the involuntary manslaughter. That was because prosecutors included a five-year mandatory firearm enhancement. However, the law did not exist at the time of the rush shooting back in 2021. The downgraded charge was a big win for the Emmy-winning actor in order to avoid further litigious distractions. When Reeb stepped down, it appeared to be another blow to the prosecution in terms of public perception. After much reflection, I have made the difficult decision to step down as a special prosecutor in the Rust case. My priority in this case, and in every case I've prosecuted for my 25-year career, has been justice for the victim. 
However, it has become clear the best way I can ensure justice is served is to step down so the prosecution can focus on the evidence and the facts, which clearly show a complete disregard for basic safety protocols leading to the death of Halna Hutchkins. I will not allow questions about my serving as a legislator and prosecutor to cloud the real issue at hand. Baldwin was rehearsing with the gun that went off and killed Hutchins. He's maintained that he did not pull the trigger. Gutierrez-Reed has been responsible for handling the weapons on the set. Production on Rust with Baldwin at the helm is set to resume later with support of Hutchins' widower. So it's my understanding there is still a civil case going on with respect to that shooting and the death. So we will keep you all posted as the outcome for that one comes forward as well. And now for the main case of the day. We are going to talk about Anne Perry, a.k.a. Juliet Marion Holmes. Anne Perry was born October 28, 1938 in London, England, as Juliet Marion Holm. Her father, Henry Rainsford Holm, was a physicist. However, the research didn't have many details about Anne's mother. Anne had health problems right from the beginning and was diagnosed with tuberculosis as a child. Her parents sent her to the Caribbean, New Zealand, and South Africa, though, hoping the milder weather and heat would help her. Because back then, they did not have the regimen of treatment for tuberculosis that they have nowadays. By the time her father took a position as rector of Canterbury University College in New Zealand, it was the late 1940s. Juliet, a.k.a. Anne, finally rejoined the family, and she attended Christchurch Girls High School. So it was 1948 when Juliet, a.k.a. Anne, immigrated to New Zealand with her parents. As opposed to Juliet's parents, Pauline's parents were working class. They were house staff and gardeners for the University of Canterbury, and they were not married, which was somewhat scandalous back then. Both Juliet and Pauline attended the same school of Christchurch Girls High School. They also bonded over their childhood illnesses. Evidently, Pauline had had osteomyitis, an infection of the bone. The symptoms are redness, fever, and weakness. And Juliet had tuberculosis. So the girls quickly began to romanticize the idea of being sick. The two girls wrote plays, books, and elaborate stories to supplement their intense friendship. This relationship soon became a concern to Pauline's parents, who suspected that perhaps a sexual relationship was going on between the two. Homosexuality was considered a mental illness back then, so both of the families had concerns when they discovered that they thought something might be happening. Even so, the girls were allowed to continue hanging out and becoming more and more withdrawn if they were separated. The girls even developed their own religion and morality, envisioning an alternate universe they called the fourth world, a version of heaven. But in the meantime, though, Juliet, a.k.a. Anne's parents, were having serious problems. It is said that her father was forced to resign as a rector and her mother had an extramarital affair. In light of all this scandal, the family planned to go back to England, but send Juliet to South Africa for her health. The girls immediately made plans for Pauline to join Anne in South Africa, although they were not sure Pauline's mother would allow the girls to go together. They planned first to go to South Africa, then Hollywood or New York City, so that they could publish their writing and work in the film industry. In later reports, Anne admitted that the relationship was obsessive, but insisted that there was no inappropriate relationship between the girls. 
So by June of 1954, the girls had created this really complicated fantasy life together. The summer of 1954 was challenging because Anne's parents were getting a divorce. And at the same time, this sort of a thing was a very complex event. So in addition to some of that, Juliet, a.k.a. Anne's parents, were sending Juliet away and she was going to be separated from her friend. And she was very deeply troubled by this and was looking for ways to prevent being separated from Pauline. At the end of June 1954, the girls had a plan in place and they had convinced Pauline's mother, Honora Reaper, to go for a walk with the two girls in Victoria Park, which is a park in Port Hills Christchurch. After some tea, the two girls led Pauline's mother down an isolated path where they paused and Juliet, a.k.a. Anne, pretended to drop a small decorated stone so that Pauline's mother would have to bend down and pick it up. Originally, the girls planned to hit Reaper in the head with a brick that was placed in a sock. They thought it would only take one hit, but it took more than 20 blows before the two finally fled the scene. They ended up running back to the tea shop where they'd previously had tea with Honora. They told the shop owners that Honora had fallen and hit her head. The shop owners, horrified, found Honora in Victoria Park and she had lacerations all over her head, neck, and face, as well as injuries to her fingers, showing that she clearly had not just fallen and hit her head as the girls had suggested. When police were called to the scene, they quickly found the brick wrapped in a stocking in a nearby wooded area. And it didn't take long for the trip and fall story to crumble and the two girls were then taken into custody. From the start, the trial was gripping and the public discovered Pauline's parents were not married. And then there were speculations of lesbianism and insanity that titillated the public even more. The trial was indeed sensational, but ended with guilty verdicts for both 16-year-old Pauline and 15-year-old Juliet, a.k.a. Anne. On August 28, 1954, the two were found guilty. Because both girls were minors, neither case could get the death penalty or life sentences. Consequently, both girls served five years in prison, with many speculating that the release was contingent upon the agreement that the two girls should never be able to contact one another again. However, sources have said since then that this simply was not the case. After release, Juliet, a.k.a. Anne, joined her father in Italy, and Pauline had to serve six months of parole in New Zealand, after which she quickly got the heck out of Dodge. On a side note, this particular murder was used as strong evidence of moral decline. About four months after the case was tried, in a special report on delinquency in children and adolescence in New Zealand, it was called the Marzengarb Report. When the two girls were eventually released, both received new names. Pauline became Hilary Nathan and went back to England, and she was said to have run a children's writing school and become very deeply religious. She never spoke publicly about the case, but in 1996, she allowed her sister to issue a statement expressing very strong remorse for the killing of her mother. She largely kept to herself and stayed out of trouble after that. Juliet was given the new name Anne Perry. That's the reason why I kept saying Juliet, a.k.a. Anne. She traveled to England after her release in the United States before eventually moving to Scotland, where she became a historical detective novelist. Anne became a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in about 1968. And she lived a relatively quiet life until the mid-1990s. She had worked as a flight attendant and several other positions before she eventually settled in on being an author. 
But in 1994, Peter Jackson released the film Heavenly Creatures, and Anne Perry's character was conveyed in this film. It was then that Juliet's identity was made public after the film's release. The film starring Kate Winslet as Holm and Melanie Linsky as Pauline portrayed the life of the two murderous teens. Anne Perry publicly lamented the release of her true identity, saying it was unfair since she worked so hard to become a decent member of society. She also claims that she wasn't consulted about the movie and was concerned that all of the publicity would hurt her family. All in all, Perry wrote well over 100 award-winning books and stories, continuing to sell well despite her criminal background and the discovery of the general public of that background. In 2005, she discussed her conviction on a talk show, and in 2009, she participated in a documentary about her life. Her worldwide sales exceeded about $10 million, so obviously she was still popular regardless of her criminal convictions in her past. But in 2017, she moved to Los Angeles from Scotland to better assist with getting her books made into films. And then in December 2022, she had a heart attack. She ended up passing away April 10th, 2023 at the age of 84. She insisted up until the day she died that she never spoke with Pauline again after the trial. But it's interesting, she did fulfill her childhood dreams of becoming a published writer and involved in films. This case is really interesting to me because you get to look at criminals who take part in horrific crimes in their youth and what happens in the later parts of their lives. Obviously, Anne went on to become a very productive member of society. First off, though, I don't believe she would have been able to exist in such obscurity in today's environment, obviously with social media and the internet. Second, it's super rare for convicted criminals to become successful after participating in horrific crimes. A variety of factors push the narrative, but mostly the judgment of society and inability to obtain gainful employment are bars to successful integration back into society after crimes like murder. Anne Perry was definitely an exception to the rule, but I am very interested in the thoughts of the listeners. Should killers and violent criminals continue to pay for the rest of their lives, or have they paid their dues? And should they be allowed back into society to live ordinary lives? So you can shoot us an email if you're interested in sharing your thoughts on that. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We also have an Instagram account that we occasionally post pictures on, and it's at thebfdpodcast. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stories. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life.